So I got this text once from my bank telling me that $100 was deposited into my account. Naturally, I clicked the link in the body of the text because free money, right? It rerouted me to what looked like my online banking webpage. And at the time, I was out running errands, so I closed it and I forgot about it. Later that day, I even remember checking my balance, sort of hopeful that it had spiked. It hadn't. Two months later, I'm looking at all my takeout charges on my banking app and thinking that I eat way too much ramen. But then I notice that my account is hundreds of dollars off. There are about 12 charges totaling $267 from places like Nebraska and Mexico City. I've never been to either, so I sort of panic and call my bank. Turns out it was a scam. My bank froze my account and the funds were returned later. That link in the text? It was a phishing scheme that led hackers right to my banking information. I got off easy, though. It's estimated that cyber criminals steal more than a trillion dollars each year. That's right, trillion with a T. And how does it happen? What's the weak link in the system? Well, look in the mirror, my friend. We are more gullible than we think. My name is Melanie Green. You're listening to Remote Works, an original podcast by Citrix. We're back after a few weeks away with family and friends. In this episode, cybersecurity, how it relates to remote work, and how hackers nearly made off with over a billion dollars. Cybercrime is constantly evolving and there are new cybercrimes and so on. The key thing that the absolute bottom line, rock solid way hackers get in is by emails, sending out dodgy emails. It's the sort of germ-laden sneeze in the elevator. That's investigative journalist Jeff White. He has been on the cybersecurity beat for years. He's seen it all. He knows how hackers leverage our weaknesses to breach our security. And he's got some great stories that show us just how easy it is and how big the payoff can be for the bad guys. One of the biggest and most unbelievable stories Jeff covered in his work has become known as the Bangladesh bank heist. It happened in 2015. Can you walk me through step-by-step the breach at the Bangladesh bank? (laughs) How long have you got and how many steps do you want to take? (laughs) (laughs) How long do you have, Jeff? I could talk about this all day. Bangladesh Bank is the national bank of that country. They have billions of dollars of money, you know, the country's store of money. And a lot of their dollar reserves were stored in New York because basically Bangladesh Bank has accounts around the world, including an account at the New York Fed in, uh, in New York, obviously. Um, and that's where they keep their dollars. So if the Bangladesh Bank wants to pay somebody in dollars, they use their account at the New York Fed and they tell the New York Fed, please transfer X amount to person Y. And they send those messages from Bangladesh Bank to New York Bank via a thing called SWIFT. SWIFT is short for the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication. Just the name tells you that it's legit. 
It's basically how banks talk to each other and tell each other to make payments. The hackers wanted to get access to the SWIFT system. But how? I mean, you've got to figure that a bank would have some serious security in place to protect those billions of dollars, right? There was a phishing email. Depressingly enough, this did work. 2015, according to the FBI, an email was sent to Bangladesh Bank from a job applicant saying, I'd like a job. Here's my CV. And it was in a zip file, which obviously makes things more difficult because for antivirus to see behind a zip file, you have to download the zip file, unzip it, unpack it, let it execute and so on. So I think the zip file element of this was probably part of it. Employee downloads a zip file, unpacks it, gets infected. And so that's what, January, February 2015, thereabouts. The hackers then spent a year before they actually took the money out which when you think about it, it's an incredibly risky thing to do. So what were the hackers up to that year before they pulled the heist on the Bangladesh Bank? What we now know, what we believe, is that that was the year in which they were lining up the bank accounts they were going to use to launder the money. They knew they could get into Bangladesh Bank. They knew they could steal some money. It's like, well, where do we put it once we've, once we've stolen it? So then they fish their way around Bangladesh Bank. They start looking for passwords. Because if you think about it, Who have they hacked there? They've hacked maybe a human resources person. That's who you're going to email your CV to. So gradually they start going from that computer they've hacked and they start bootstrapping their way around the organization, stealing a password here, logging into a computer there, gets them more passwords. They gradually sort of escalate the privileges until they get to the computer that runs Swift, that's actually sending the Swift messages, which it seems was connected to the internet and probably shouldn't have been. But this allows the hackers to start sending Swift messages. So they are inside Bangladesh Bank systems. They then say to the bank in New York where the dollars are stored, please transfer. And then they had 36 different transactions, totaling almost a billion dollars, $951 million, which was going to go out to 36 accounts around the world that the hackers or people working with them had set up to receive all of that money. So this was going to be the billion dollar bank heist. Yes, a billion dollars. Imagine being that employee who clicked on the zip attachment. You think to yourself, who would do that? Well, according to Rob Sadowski, a lot of us. Rob is the trust and security lead at Google Cloud. You know, as humans, we're naturally curious. You know, sometimes we want to click on a link that looks intriguing or we want to be helpful and respond to a call that someone says they need help with something and they need a password. So, you know, I think that we always have to recognize that there will be times where this genuine human condition just leads us to do things that may not be the best things in terms of security. So what we can't do is rely completely on, you know, someone being who they say they are. In other words, we need to first have really, really strong authentication to establish, again, that a user is who he or she says they are. But we can't just rely on authentication and identity. Rob Sadowski and Google's Beyond Corp have partnered with Citrix to build something called Zero Trust Networks. Zero Trust Security is kind of based on a principle of, of, you know, never trust, always verify. Meet Akilesh Dawan. He's the Citrix head of product marketing for workspace security. There is no concept of a, a trusted user or a trusted URL or a trusted device. 
right? Uh, which is true in the older models of security where I'm trusting you because you're using a managed device or if you're using a corporate device that you will do no wrong in the system after you log in. So zero trust is a way to prevent the kind of cyber hacking that allowed hackers to pull off their phishing scam and have direct access to the Bangladesh bank's billions. I'm sure that they were dreaming of my ties on the beach. But then... A couple of things went wrong. Firstly, uh, some of the money went to uh, the Philippines, um, $81 million dollars. It went to a bank in a street called Jupiter Street, which is in Manila. It's in the finance district. Jupiter happens to have also been on a U.S. government watch list for for anti-terror money laundering kind of stuff. That raised some alarm bells. Authorities took a closer look. So people started looking through the transactions and going, hang on, these transactions have quite a lot of money. New York Fed was texting back or messaging back to Bangladesh Bank saying, are you sure you want to transfer this money? Problem was, it was the weekend in Bangladesh. Friday, Saturday of the weekend in Bangladesh. So as the New York Fed was messaging on a Friday, they weren't getting any reception back from Bangladesh. So gradually the high started to grind to a halt. But $81 million of the money slips through, ends up in four accounts in the Philippines. That $81 million was then laundered through various casinos. What started it all off is an email sent by a job applicant with a CV attached. And somebody in Bangladesh Bank clicked on the email and opened it. So what's the $81 million lesson here? If you said, don't open attachments from someone you don't know, you'd be right. But there's more to learn. And a lot of it applies to remote work. What's interesting with people working from home is they're more isolated. They're often working with each other digitally. I might send you an email that says, hey, uh, you need to update your software, you know, click here. And you might think, oh, well, you know, I haven't seen Jeff in a few days, but yes, yeah, it looks like it comes from him. So that social engineering piece for people working at home, a little more isolated from their organizations, their companies and their colleagues, that social engineering stuff really sort of feeds in. And the other thing is people working from home, they're disrupted. Their working patterns are disrupted. So as a hacker, I might send somebody an email you know, that they would spot instantly at work, you know, as I say, update your settings here or, you know, click here for your annual bonus, you know, report. At work, you might look at that email and think, oh, that's, I'm not clicking on that. That's a phishing email. But at home, because you're working from home, because your your company's systems and, and, and processes are completely different to how they normally are, you might look and think, well, yeah, maybe our bonuses are being handed out via email. And maybe, maybe I do need to click that because you're not quite sure what's normal. Uh, we're in abnormal circumstances, all of us. And that I think the hackers are preying on in terms of social engineering and social manipulation. Yeah, last week I got an email from my boss that was a total phishing email. And oh. I almost clicked the link, me, who already knows all of that information. It's easy to do. It's, and this is the thing. The tragedy of it is, you know, to use the cliche phrase, the hackers only have to be right once, whereas the defenders have to be right every time. That's scary. The biggest vulnerability is the human vulnerability. But Zero Trust may have an answer for that. 
we have to adhere to the good security principle of defense in depth, right? We have multiple layers of security, or in a zero trust sense, there are multiple things that we do in order to allow you to access a system or a resource. So for example, if a hacker is able to trick a user into revealing their credentials or revealing their password, but our system says, okay, you not only have to know the username and password, but you have to be coming in from a device that we know about, from a network location that we know about, or be coming in at a certain time of day, then all of the hacker basically has to have all of those things exactly right to be able to gain access to the system. So it's those multiple layers of security or those multiple layers of trust that we build in order to give that access. And so that's how we we get around some of the potential human errors that can lead to security challenges. But with so many of us moving out of the office, we've lost a big defense tool. When everyone is working together, you can create an internal network. It's like your own walled digital city. That wall made it easier to keep hackers out. We used to rely primarily on the network perimeter or the border to act as a border when we were in the office. So you're in the office, you're on the corporate network, there's a lot of protection we can build into that network. So I I guess the real question is, is that where do you put that perimeter? Where do you draw that border? It's not around the corporate network. It's not around the office. Um, It's kind of that the perimeter has really disappeared. And so we have to have a mechanism to have the same level of protection or hopefully even better protection without relying on being on and being in you know being on the corporate network and being inside an office and that's really the security challenge that has come to the fore here in 2020 but even with the best security we humans have a way of being fooled so you can do all these things all these expensive systems changes to stop it happening or you can also educate your employees and say, look, if you get a CV from somebody, it's a zip file, please don't open it, send it to IT first. So there's a handy tip sheet on how not to get hacked. And there's another pretty clever way to suss out potential human error. It's called ethical hacking. That's Nick Alex's passion. He's the CEO of Alex Security Cyber Intelligence in Toronto. Nick is hired by companies to assess their security practices and systems so they can avoid being hacked like the Bangladesh bank was. They do it by playing the role of hackers. They test client systems and they test the people who use them. It can be as simple as sending an email. What we're seeing now are huge trends in in phishing emails or people spoofing executives at companies pretending to be your CEO. If people aren't careful and not seeing where this email is coming from, they will give out their phone number, give out their information, and this will allow uh, attackers to be able to start social engineering and, and getting people to divulge information. How does social engineering work? It's an attack tailored to people's uh, weaknesses. And people have a lot of weaknesses, whether it's fame, fortune, curiosity, fear, 
Every single day we go through um, certain emotions that are easily exploited by people who have looked at our Facebook and LinkedIn profiles and really understand what our likes are and what our dislikes are, who our friends are, what activities we like. And, and they can craft attacks that are very much sophisticated enough where we'd be susceptible to falling for them. That's all well and good. But we all know that hacking only happens to the other guy, like the poor employee who downloaded the fake CV from our bank robbers. But could we be fooled? Well, there's only one way to find out. We decided to try a little social experiment. A while back, we invited Nick to try to hack into somebody's system. The potential victim? Hmm, who should it be? Oh, I know. My boss, Jeff. Ready, set, attack. I originally started with the social engineering spear phishing attack, where I registered for a domain that was very close to the one that he owns. So he has his own website. And I registered one that was very similar to his. So I wanted to essentially create a fake website where I'd clone his website and then change around certain details. And then as I changed details of his website in the cloned version, I was going to send him an email saying, hey, Jeff, it seems like there was some suspicious uh, activity on your website. Would you like to restore to the latest backup of your website? Because it looks like there was some unauthorized changes. To see what those unauthorized changes are, click here. I was able to send out that email. I was able to see that he clicked the link. He got a good laugh out of seeing the changes on his website because it just said, Jeff has been hacked all over his website. (laughs) So he he laughed about it and he was about to click the backup button. And he noticed that something was being downloaded onto his computer. Because his guard was up and he knew that this was coming, he never actually clicked that particular payload, uh, which would have given me access to his entire computer. So kudos to to Jeff for not falling for it, but he, he was curious enough to click and open up the email as well as download the attachment. Given what you just said, I mean, what's the one thing that you wish the average person or employee knew? If I can speak to every remote worker there now, working remotely doesn't mean we can't uphold the same level of privacy and security for our customers. If we follow some really simple rules, we can ensure that customers' data is as as protected and kept private than if we were at the office. So try to avoid public Wi-Fi. You never know who's peering over your shoulder or who else might be on that network sniffing packets uh, and seeing what you're seeing. I'd also recommend that everyone keep their work data on their work computers. Great tips from ethical hacker Nick Alex. I admit I've spent many hours working at the local cafe while nursing a latte. I'll stop using the free Wi-Fi. That's a simple step I can take. But Akhilesh Dawan says that security is not just about making employees follow rules. In fact, if security becomes too onerous, employees are tempted to, you know, just forget about it. So our... You know, security over a period of time has gotten this reputation of getting in the way of getting work done. That's particularly relevant now that we're working remotely. Now with the new way where, you know, most of the employees are remote, 
they already are stressed out with ton of things that they've been asked to do. A lot of these employees are already struggling with so many things going around. And I think security, the way that it is implemented today is just making it worse for them. They are not able to get their work done. They have to log in different times for certain applications. The experience of accessing those applications is not consistent. The devices they can use are not supported. Um, and so on and so forth. And that is just adding to the stress levels for for employees. And this is kind of the things that we are looking from Citrix is how do we help these employees and these customers improve the way that users can get their work done faster and, and keeping the security as an invisible force behind the scene, making sure that it doesn't stand in the way of getting the work done. So Akalash and his team take that invisible, seamless kind of security seriously when it comes to remote work. Specifically, what they want to avoid is employees having to log in for multiple plugins and access points. We are giving them one single access point so that they can come one time they log in to Citrix workspace and get access to their all their applications, whether they are hosted in the data center, whether these applications are traditional virtual applications, so all of those applications can now be presented in, in your workspace. So that's one way we are looking at making lives easier for these employees. And now, not only do they get unified access, but the look and feel is the same. It's the same security policies. But what does it take to make employees' lives easier? It actually takes partnerships with companies working in this security space. The goal is to keep the infrastructure already in place instead of having to rip out and replace with new ones. I think that partnerships are essential because no one is going to be building a zero trust system from scratch. One of the key areas of partnerships is to make sure that security information, especially about people and devices, is able to be leveraged by a new, you know, zero trust system, a policy manager, a policy controller, something like that. That's a key piece. Another thing is making sure that we can use zero trust models to protect all different types of resources. So whether it's an application, whether it's a virtual machine, you know, how do we do the connectivity between those things? That's another really important area of integration and partnerships to make sure that Everything that that users might want to access, those systems, those apps, those resources, can all be part of a system like that. Security has to be user-friendly, because if it's not, what happens is that users look to circumvent it. No one wants to jump through hoops. As we're designing any system, right, not just a security system or, or an application, we have to, you know, we have to put the user first. We have to be user-centric. So any device you're using, whether it's your Android or your iPhone, your Mac, Windows, you know, a lot of times you have all these different devices, but with Workspace, the look and feel and the way you log in is exactly the same across all devices. So you log in one time on your device and you can access all your applications, all your data, anything that you need for your corporate work to be done, you have everything in one place. User-friendly, one login, no surprises. That's going to cut down on a lot of frustration, and it's definitely going to keep us safer in this remote work world. But back to the $81 million question for a moment. 
I now know that even the tightest security comes up against its greatest vulnerability, the human psyche. Zero Trust really helps solve that problem. I can't help but wonder, though, is it even possible to be 100% secure? Can anonymous hackers pull off a billion-dollar bank heist in the future? Jeff White says that's the big question that companies grapple with these days. Possibly supercomputers will put us ahead of hacking for a little while, but hackers will sort of catch up to it. And and the other thing is, you know, technology gets smarter. Human beings evolve considerably less quickly in my my experience. So, you know, who's got the password to the supercomputer? Should I hack the supercomputer or should I try and trick the guy who's got the password into giving me the password? So I don't think anything can ever be secure. But a friend of mine, you know, a a contact of mine came out with a great sort of phrase. I was saying, look, cybercrime's just there. It's, it's kind of a tax on modern life. We've just got to accept this. And he said, it's like being a gardener. You have to keep the weeds down. If you don't deal with the weeds in your garden, you just end up overrun by weeds. So no, you're never going to get rid of all the weeds in your garden. But if you don't do something about it, you're just going to end up with a garden of weeds. In terms of our personal finances, our personal data and our security, we don't want to end up with a weed garden. So unfortunately, we have to do the work, even though we know it's never going to be 100% effective. You've been listening to Remote Works, an original podcast by Citrix. Subscribe and come back in two weeks when we trace one woman's path to burnout and the route she took to leave it behind. That's at citrix.com slash remote works.